you're listening to Rumination Thursday, Law and Gospel, on this February the 7th in the year of our Lord 2019. And being a Rumination Thursday, we have with us Pastor Wes Reimnitz. Hi, Wes. Hi, Tom. How are you? Well, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, did you do a sermon last week? Sure did. And, of course, the sermon was about how to build a boat, or was it about how to fix your car, or how to do proper farming? You know, that's what sermons were at one time, mm. when people got away from doctrine, and they said, we got to get more practical things. And so a lot of them were self-help sermons Sermon. during the time of pietism. Yes, and no, mine was quite re- quite different. It was Jeremiah and and, and the, how we are called to witness and how we sometimes don't want to witness. So you attack the people. <laughs> well, let's say certain accusations were made. That yeah, that's a better word. <laughs> yeah, um, we're going to be talking about today, how do you know you're hearing a sermon and how do you know you're not hearing just a good lecture or a table talk or a self-help sermon or stories or this sort of thing? Uh, or even what I find, a lot of what we call exegetical sermons, where they simply explain the text, but they don't apply it to the people sitting in the pew. And so that's why I always say, when somebody says, boy, did I ever hear a good sermon, my first question is, how did the pastor attack the people? And they look at me with a quizzical look on their face and saying, what has that got to do with a sermon? Well, you're right, because it's, it's, I call it the shotgun message. You can shoot the shotgun right over their, their heads with, with all kinds of sins out there but never get to the heart of what may be bothering or causing them to to, to sin within the congregation itself. We've got C.F.W. Walther, who, of course, wrote Proper Distinctions Between Law and Gospel. And uh, the 25 Theses really deal with how in a sermon a pastor misuses either the law or the gospel, which shows me that from his point of view, every sermon ought to be about law and gospel primarily. Right. And he really breaks it down to two classes of people. He, he, it's interesting. He talks about the two classes of people. Mankind is really divided either to believers or unbelievers, godly, ungodly, converted, unconverted. Regenerated, unregenerated. Wow. So in those classes of people, they all need to hear the law and the gospel. Right. Probably the most, one of the, the a lot of famous ones out of the Bible, but the one that I always think about is uh, Nathaniel, uh, Nathan and David, where Nathan confronts David with his sin. Oh, yes. And then and then David himself comes out and says, I have sinned. And he does it by means of a kind of a parable story about a rich man who stole someone else's pet ewe lamb and killed it for his visitor. And David says, bring that man to me and I will kill him. And Nathan says, thou art the man. Yeah, yeah. and there, there is, as you says, a story is told 
and then the application is made. Yes, the application has to be made. I don't have any problem with using stories or analogies or like Jesus many times use parables to make a point. But I can't think of one parable that he has where he's not accusing the people of not understanding proper doctrine or not doing what they ought to be doing. How about the Samaritan? Oh, that's an easy one, because in the Good Samaritan, uh, that, first of all, I don't believe is a parable. I think mm. that's just an analogy, because now Jim Belts corrected me on this. It is a parable, but it's not a kingdom parable. He makes the distinctions. It's just simply a story to make a point that remember what the rich, uh, no, the lawyer in this case asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Oh, you want to do something? Well, all you have to do is love Samaritans. Oh, no, there's no way he's going to do that. So that's the accusation that none of us reach a proper good work level where we earn or merit our way to heaven. It's a huge accusation uh, against the lawyer. Okay, how about uh, the 99 and 1 sheep, the lost sheep? Oh, that's easy. Uh, particularly for today, if I was preaching that, do you know how many people think that they have to do something in order to be saved? And they have to invite Christ into their heart, or they have to make a decision, or they better have to be good. Just ask people, if you die tonight, would you go to heaven? And you'll be amazed at the wrong answers they give. Some will say, well, yes, I have faith, or I believe in Jesus, or all these kinds of things. No, there's nothing you have to do, even the faith that you're given. And that's a tremendous story because the shepherd alone goes, finds the sheep, puts it on his shoulders, and brings it home. How, how about the uh, Sermon on the Mount? Is there any law and gospel in that? You always say there's law and gospel, and I kept looking at it. I typically look at it more from a uh, a gospel perspective, but I think you, you're looking at it more from a law and gospel perspective. Well, let's just take um, one item. Uh, the first thing Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount about uh, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever mm. murders will be liable to judgment. Now, you've got the Pharisees standing there and say, we haven't murdered anybody. Listen to verse 22 of Matthew 5. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Well, if that isn't accusation of using the law against people who think that they obey the fifth commandment, a proper understanding, when we start off with adult instruction following Martin Luther, we do so with the Ten Commandments. And the reason for that is there isn't one commandment that any of us have kept perfectly. You know, it's interesting, too, when you read uh, 
uh, Matthew chapter 5, it talks about going to court, and it talks about to come to terms quickly with your accuser. Yes, while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. So that's really an accusation against us in willing to use the secular courts to deal with other Christians rather than going to them and trying to work it out between the two of you. Mm. And then there's divorce, oath. Well, how, how about the adultery? Yeah, adultery. Oh, yes. How does that occur? Just by looking at a woman, you know, with lust in your eyes. So he puts that at the same level as actually doing adultery. In fact, if you go to the Old Testament, how many times when Moses is preaching, is he speaking out against the people and what they are doing in not believing the word of God or not doing what they said? I mean... If you and I have been taken through the Red Sea and seen that tremendous miracle, do you think the first thing we'd be complaining to God about is not having enough water? Yeah, that's right. But it also brings to mind when, when, when you say, as we discuss it, don't we, in, a, in our confession of sins and thought, word, and deed, confess to Christ everything? I miss what you're saying there. In thought, word, and deed. You know, we have sinned against God. Oh, I see. Yes, yes. Yeah, because a lot of people think thoughts aren't sins. And there's another accusation. In fact, here's what you do with a text. Uh, You take a look at it, and you find out, okay, where in the text is there accusation against the members? For example, you had just done Jeremiah, and remember... Jeremiah says, I can't do this. I'm but a youth. What does God say to him? He says, I'll give you the words. That's right. Don't say you're a youth. Well, I'll tell you, talk about good law. How many people don't want to bring up our theology in case they lose a friend or something? Like if they're talking about uh, abortion at the office uh, during lunchtime, which you're able to do, And then somebody says, boy, oh boy, you know, abortion is okay, and you keep quiet. Then you're saying you're just like Jeremiah. I don't have the uh, theological background to say anything. And God says, no, I'll give you the words to say. How about in our family sometimes when it comes to talking to them about coming to church or some of the things that they're involved in? Well, I used that in a sermon last night. I think one of the biggest dangers for children these days, how many parents give their child a phone and also the use of the Internet? That really needs to be looked at carefully uh, on the part, uh, because look how many uh, young girls were kidnapped by somebody they met on the Internet, and they thought, well, this is a nice person, and went to see them, and all bad things kind of happened. Yeah. Another case uh, that I've seen out there here lately is uh, one family has invited another family back to church, and the family they invited back to church are pro-abortion, and they are simply through coming and hearing the Word of God, letting that have an effect on them before they sit down and talk to them about the abortion issue. 
Yes, uh, I think pastors need to make it easier for people to witness. One of the things we did uh, when I was a, a pastor full time is I would be willing to attend Bible classes in the homes of members who would invite people from the neighborhood to come over for some uh, cake and uh, um, some refreshments, and then I'd have a Bible study. They'd be well aware of this. There were a number of people who ended up joining the church there. And during that Bible study, we always were accusing all of us of sinning and our need for a Savior. If you don't use the law, why would anybody need a Savior? Because most people don't think they're that bad. No, you're correct. You're right spot on. Spot on is, in fact, I can remember one wife inviting her husband and he says, says, they don't want me there. The church will fall in because I'm such a poor, miserable sinner. And she just looked at him and she said, I told him, just move over with the rest of us. Yes. Yeah, a lot of people just don't realize that. They refer to the church as hypocrites because they know some of our members who continue to sin during the week. And therefore, they think they're below being a Christian. That's not true. Christians sin all week. And sometimes it's seen by our neighbor. And that's why, remember that confession? We're poor, miserable sinners deserving nothing but... Death, death, eternal death. Temporal Temporal and eternal punishment. Yeah, exactly. So, in other words, we need to be really clear here. It's not wrong that, for example, I do this a lot in the sermon. I explain things that people may be unaware of. Uh, for for example, in last night's sermon, Jesus had told the demons to stop talking, even though it sounded like what they were saying was true. You know, you are the Christ, you are the Son of God. And I made the point that in Jesus' day, if you could name someone, that meant you had authority over them or a relationship with them, like Zachariah naming John the baptizer, his name was John. That's because he was his father. And Jesus did not want to give any indication that the demons had authority over him or that they had a relationship with him. And that's why he told them to be quiet. Now, I think that was kind of new information, but we still, I said, hadn't gotten to the sermon because then the sermon was how we often are the opposite of the demons when God wants us to talk and we don't talk. Mm. And uh, I think the other thing that comes to mind is, aren't you also dealing with a, a historic faith of the uh, devils versus a saving faith? Well, not only do the devils know the history of the Bible, and that doesn't save anybody, But they also, when they talk about Jesus as the Christ, they don't have the proper meaning of Christ. Mm -hmm. They they have the meaning like the 5,000 who were fed by Jesus that he was going to be a bread king. And so even the disciples, remember, they believed him to be the Christ, and then they were shocked that he got crucified. (laughs) Even though Psalm 22 talks about it, Isaiah 53 talks about it, and, and so... Just because you may know the title of Jesus doesn't mean you understand what it means. So what I've been telling people, 
if you want to know whether you're hearing a sermon, listen carefully and see if there's an occasion when finally the people in the pew are also accused by the same law that the particular text is talking about. And there are many, many kinds of law that are talked about in different parts of the Bible. And that's the task of the pastor to apply it to the people in the pew. Well, one such sermon that you you probably could apply that to is the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, wouldn't you? Oh, absolutely, because he says, and you have killed the Christ. And what's the reaction? What shall we do? And then the response is, well, you can't do anything but be baptized, that's a passive, which means it's something done for you where you will receive the gift of the forgiveness of sins and also the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, to back it up a little bit, though, too, before they say, what must we do, we're told that they were cut to the heart. Yes. The law had done its job. You know, that's a good way of saying it, that... If a sermon doesn't cut the hearers to the heart, it's probably not a proper long gospel sermon. Right. That's from a law perspective, but also the other aspect of it is to hear that my sins are forgiven and I'm a baptized child of God. That's right. And that's why, the way I like saying it, The law is God's demands, but he wants perfection, which no one can do on their own power. Therefore, God steps in and accomplishes it for us and then transfers that righteousness, that robe of righteousness of Christ over to us who do not deserve it. Right. Well, too, we we would say in our baptism, that's where Christ became sin for us, and at the cross is where he took took the punishment for us, and would we not? Yes, that he was our substitute, and that therefore, in recognizing that, we come to an understanding how important it is. When, when Paul writes Romans, for example, what does he deal with in the first few chapters? Ooh. Uh, a lot of sin, especially homosexuality. Yes, and sin not only by the Jews, but also by the... Gentiles. Yes, and he even mm. says uh, the Jew has no advantage over the Gentile because all have sinned sin. and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges... And so, boy, there is so much law in the sermon. I can't think of a sermon in the Bible that doesn't have an accusation of law and then finally the gospel. You've got books that do that, like some of the uh, prophets, the minor prophets, first three chapters, all law, and then all of a sudden the gospel comes through in the last chapter. Now, how about Acts chapter 17? where Paul's in Athens, Athens and uh, pre- preaches about the unknown God. Yes. The accusation there is they are unaware 
that the unknown God, and they invented the unknown God to take care of all the areas where they didn't have other gods. So there's their accusation because there is no unknown God who takes care of that. There is a true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that's why our missionaries will use the false religions that people have in various lands and say, okay, this is how you think it is, but guess what? There is no unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And then he starts with verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Every one of those is an accusation against people who think that they have their God in control because they have a temple for their gods. They know how to manipulate their gods, etc. It's really a lot of law here until he talks about, of course, the God that they are unknown about is really Jesus Christ. Christ. And it's interesting, in verse 32, uh, the reaction. Of the resurrection of the dead. Dead, yes. Some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. And then read 34, because that's really important. Uh, But some men joined him and believed. Yes, isn't that interesting that the Holy Spirit took what was absolutely ridiculous, namely a resurrection from the dead, And he moved the hearts. And following what David says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So you you could go for another two hours asking me Bible verses of sermons, and every one of them will have law and gospel. Yeah. And thesis 25, the very last thesis of Walter is that the gospel must predominate. Yes, the gospel must predominate. What we mean by that is when a person... It doesn't mean that the majority of the words in the sermon are about the gospel, but when a person finishes hearing the sermon, the thing they best remember is the gospel because Uh, that overcomes and comforts them. And that brings us back to Acts chapter 2 because... There, he talks about repent and believe. Yes. Uh, Repent is really saying, yes, I am a sinner, and I am contrite over that sin, knowing that Jesus, my Lord, has died on the cross for my sin. So the, the bottom line here is we're encouraging people, as they listen to a sermon, See where the part is where the people in the pew listening to the sermon are accused, or I like saying, or are attacked, because that's what the old Adam thinks is happening, because Jesus definitely attacked uh, the Pharisees, talking to them that, well, you know who your God is, your father is the devil himself. Right, and in particular... Not just the people in the pew, but as I sit in the pew, 
how does that law apply to me and how does it that the gospel applies to me? Yes. The pastor needs to remember as he points the finger at the congregation people, four of them are returning back to him. Yeah, right. But isn't that like it? sometimes when we're preaching, we're, we're, we think that we're going one way to the congregation, we find out that we've hit other areas? Yes, people will come at the end and say, that was a great sermon. What did you like about it? And they'll often say something I can't remember preaching. <laughs> yeah, the Holy Spirit was working double time. Well, people may have questions about what we just said. It's a very simple thing that a sermon needs to be accusing people in the pew of what's going on in the text. And there are probably some questions people have about that. And tomorrow is Open Mic Friday, at which time they can call in and ask about them. But thanks so much, Wes, especially looking through and asking those questions. You will not find a sermon where law and gospel is not found. Are, are you preaching this week? I have this weekend off. Next weekend, I'm out again. Oh, okay. Well, God bless you, and we pray that the weather's good, so no more cancellations, for sure. <laughs> right. Okay. Thanks so very much. Tomorrow, Open Mic Friday. God bless. Law and Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law and Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker, P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri, 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542. We are the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO.